This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is sponsored by Marantz. A great balance of warmth and smoothness while maintaining tons of details. It's basically responsible for playing the soundtrack to my childhood. These are real words spoken by real Marantz fans who are some of the most passionate audio lovers in the world. When you spin vinyl on a Marantz turntable connected to a Marantz hi-fi system, you'll understand why Marantz is one of the most legendary hi-fi companies of all time and why their fans are so passionate about that warm, rich, legendary Marantz sound. Check out all the latest Marantz gear at Marantz.com. That's M-A-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Or see what their fans have to say at hashtag WhyMarantz. Welcome back to this, the third episode of VMP Anthology, the story of Stax Records. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. When we last left you, Stax was just starting its climb from a regional soul label to one of the most iconic record labels of all time, thanks in part to a distribution deal with Atlantic Records. The boom thanks to artists like Sam and Dave and Booker T and the MGs, along with the changing music industry, led to the label starting its concerted push into LPs versus being the single label they had been before. The same time this was happening, a Georgian guitarist named Johnny Jenkins got offered some studio time at Stax. And little did Stax know, a guy along for the ride would become their most popular artist. Here's me with Robert Gordon again. Let's sort of talk how Otis Redding ends up at the label. So he he shows up and is driving Johnny Jenkins, right? Right. And nobody like... Wait a minute, man. You're spoiling the story. You're spoiling (laughs) the story. That's the punchline, not the opening line. Okay. So what's the... What's the... What's the... (laughs) The the history in brief is this guy in Georgia has a regional hit with a song called Love Twist. uh, And it's an instrumental. And it's out on Atlantic. And Atlantic says, oh, let's put that guy in front of our ace instrumental band in Memphis, the MGs, and let's have him cut another instrumental hit. But um, Johnny Jenkins is a showman. You know, he plays with a guitar behind his back and over his head and all kinds of fast, you know. The Chitlin Im- circuit, like, impressive attention. Crowd, yeah. impressive stuff that is not what really the studio's for. Right. You know, so, so he becomes the first guy that the MGs can't find a groove with. And the session falls apart and, and his driver had been hanging around all day saying, bugging Al Jackson in particular saying, man, you got to hear me sing, but they forget to give him the, the chance. And people are already packing up when Al goes to Steve Cropper, who's kind of running the session says, Hey man, we got to, I told this guy, we'd give him a chance. And Jim Stewart's in there going, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We said we'd do it. So they say, okay, young man, come here and, you know, what do you want to do? And Cropper, the guitarist, sits at the keyboard and, you know, he can't, he can chord. He can't play, you know, real well, but he can find his way. Mm-hmm. And Otis gives him the key and tells him what to do. And Steve says, as soon as he hears his voice, the hair on his arm started to stand up and he races out back and starts to try to, you know, <laughs> grab, grab the band back. Mm-hmm. So Booker has already left. 
Louis Steinberg, the bassist, is, is, is loading his bass in the car when Steve says, no, no, you got to come back in. We're going to keep cutting. We, you know, we, we, we found our guy. Uh-huh. And, um, and so it's a real pared down backing band, which gives Otis all the room he needs to show off his voice. And, and you know, and so the punchline is it's the driver, you know, the, the, the guy who's carrying in the amps for the, for the flashy singer. It's the driver who cuts the hits. Right. Yeah. And I think, and I just finished uh, Booker T's book. Oh, um, and yeah. And he says in that, that like, that was the, they just thought of him as like, he remembers him pulling up and yeah. like, just thinking like, this is, they, he got the right guy to like unload the car. Cause he was like a big guy yeah. <laughs> and that's all they were really thinking. And then he like heard him kind of whistling and was like, yeah, whatever. And then like went and did his thing. And then it was turned out that it was Otis Redding is yeah. the guy. Yeah. I will do anything that you want. Otis Redding was born in Macon, Georgia on September 9, 1941. Macon is located near the center of Georgia and today has a population of around 150,000 people. Despite being pretty unremarkable, it was somehow the birthplace for three pillars of soul and one of Southern rock. Little Richard, Otis Redding, and James Brown, and the Allman Brothers of the Allman Brothers Band were all born there. Redding started his Stax career as a capable interpreter of soul ballads on his first album, before he'd develop his own way of being a soul singer. Redding quickly rose up the Stax roster, as every subsequent ballad he released would at least do well on the R&B charts. In 1965, he released his first LP breakthrough, Otis Blue, an album that would go on to much bigger fame a few years later, when a singer from Detroit named Aretha Franklin covered respect and became an icon. In 1965 and 1966, there was basically no bigger act on the soul circuit than Otis Redding. But because soul music was considered niche, and because the rock music journalism infrastructure was a couple years away from developing, Otis sat for just a single interview while he was alive. Otis Redding is maybe the least knowable of all the canonical greats in American music history. No one knows what he was thinking when he made all of his albums. Most of his biography is based on secondhand sources at this point. But at the same time, no amount of historical context or quotes from former bandmates will get you as close to Otis Redding as the feeling you get in your chest during his opening verse of Cigarettes and Coffee. It's early in the morning About a quarter till three The song you're hearing here is an obscure song written by Jerry Butler, an immensely popular Philly soul singer covered by Redding. It's one of his masterpieces, a song where he was able to show all the power and restraint in his voice. And play off of the iconic MGs and deliver a show-stopping performance. It's the centerpiece for 1966, The Soul Album, an album that sometimes gets overlooked in Otis's discography. It sits between Otis Blue and his later 1966 album, The Dictionary of Soul, which after Otis's tragic death, became the most likely pickups for people discovering Otis via Dock of the Bay. But when he was alive, the Soul album was Otis's second strongest performing album. It went to number three on the R&B charts and number 54 on the pop charts, which was the first time he cracked the top 70. It would, along with the two albums surrounding it, lead Otis to getting booked at Monterey Pop 
and led to the breakthroughs that would vault him into superstardom in 1967. Here, Steve Cropper remembers what it was like to write with Otis in that 1965 and 1966 period. What is something people don't know about what it's like to work with him? Yeah, it was tough. Uh, he was, well, William was a very close friend. Eddie Floyd was a very close friend. Otis, to me, was like an older brother. Okay. Didn't know we were the same age. Never asked him. You don't ask people what their ages are in those days. Right. You don't know. And uh, he was so streetwise, he was just, he just knew everything. And I'd hang with him, and I just tagged around like a little brother, you know. So I didn't know until after he passed away reading his obituary that we were the same age. I went, what? <laughs> That's crazy. So when I tell people that story that he was 26 when he passed away, they go, he was that young? Mm -hmm. Well, 26 today is pretty young. Most guys are still living at home. Right. We were ready to leave home when we were 14, 15 years old, to tackle the world, you know, mm -hmm. but not today. So it's just different, different time. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like to co-write songs with him? Because you did some on... Well, yeah. <clears throat> that was a very serious business when we wrote. And uh, one of the songs that did hit was Five, 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 Five. And uh, we were writing on another song. I don't remember what, what the subject matter was, but he was, on that song, he was trying to explain to me a horn line. And his idea of a saxophone was Five, 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 Five. I said, there's our song right there. <laughs> so listen to the lyrics. I've been singing these sad, sad songs. Oh, sad songs is all I know. <laughs> <laughs> F, Your turn. Oh. It's just made up stuff. We just made it up as we went, and whatever we were feeling, that's what we went with. Mm -hmm. Very few times do we ever hang out in a motel room together and not come out with a song. We chose the Soul album for Anthology because it represents Otis in Meteor Res, an album away from being one of the biggest R&B stars on Earth, but still 40 months removed from just being the driver. 18 months after this album was released, Otis would die in a tragic plane crash, and the hole he'd leave at Stax was never filled. Once Stax turned into a veritable hit machine, it became clear that the label couldn't solely rely on the house band of the MGs. That would lead to burnout at best and defection at worst, both of which would happen eventually. So when a group of teenagers called the Impalas came into the Stacks orbit, by virtue of being passed around the studio and asking to help however they could, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to expand the Stacks house band roster. It would take a name change inspired by a Bacardi billboard first, but for a brief couple years, the hottest road band and studio band at Stacks was the Bar Kays, an integrated crew of local high schoolers who wanted nothing more than to be the new MGs. That they'd mostly get their wish is a testament to their powers. The Bar Kays were favorites of Estelle Axton, who encouraged them to keep working on their music and set them up with multiple auditions with MG member and staff producer Steve Cropper. Cropper famously turned the band down multiple times, claiming to not hear whatever people wanted him to hear, and it took fortuitous timing for the band to get signed to Stax's Volt imprint. Jim Stewart walked in on the group rehearsing, heard them laying down a groove, and demanded they record it instantly. It would be released as Soul Finger and would be a smash hit. 
It hit number three on the R&B chart and number 17 on the pop. Not only were the Barkays signed to Stax, now they were stars. The boys in the band still had to finish high school while simultaneously recording material that would become their debut LP, Soulfinger, included in the VMP anthology. They had a regular club date in Memphis to attend to as well, playing the city's bars before they could even get in legally. After his famous early 1967 tour in Europe with the MGs, Otis Redding was back in Memphis recording and gearing up for a U.S. tour in spring of 1967. Knowing that the MGs would be tied up in the studio throughout 1967 and 1968, Redding decided to go check out the Barkays play a club, and he was blown away. He jumped on stage and performed a couple of songs with the band, and decided then and there they needed to be his. He offered the band to back him on a couple spot dates in the spring of 1967, but the Barkays' parents wouldn't let them. They needed to finish school first. The day that the Barkays graduated high school, they boarded a plane to play with Otis at the Apollo in New York City. Otis took the Barkays around North America, playing everywhere from Montreal to LA and points in between. He bought a plane big enough to tour with the six-piece band, though one of them always had to fly commercial since the plane didn't seat all of them. Somewhere in between the dates with Otis and graduating, the band recorded the rest of their debut LP, Soulfinger, which captured their hazy rock as soul rock, a looser-limbed affair than the MGs' albums. It boasted 11 songs, some covers and some originals, and we chose it for this anthology because like Soul Dressing, it captures how vital even the instrumental albums on sax can be. There's no other rock or soul label that was as committed to proving their bands can make awesome instrumental albums like Stax was. It's also the only album we could pair with Otis Redding in our anthology rollout. In the winter of 1967, Otis Redding's plane would go down over Madison, Wisconsin's Lake Monona, a lake four blocks from Vinyl Me Please's Midwest HQ, and kill four of the Bar Ks, ending the band's first iteration less than a year after they arrived on Stax. Trumpeter Ben Cauley, who horrifically floated in Lake Monona on a seat he was holding while sleeping when the plane crashed, and bassist James Alexander, who was flying commercial as it was his turn on the rotation, would eventually reform the Bar Ks as a studio band, and then a popular funk band around vocalist Larry Dodson. They'd play on dozens of Stax albums eventually, most notably Isaac Hayes' Hot Buttered Soul and Shaft, and the seventh album in this box set by a blues legend. But Soulfinger captures them in their teenage glory, when the looseness of young age could convince you you have the chops to walk into stacks and get a job backing up the best soul singer of all time. In this segment, I sit down for an interview with James Alexander, the last original Barquet, at American Recording Studios in Memphis, to talk about Soulfinger, playing with Otis Redding, and how nothing the band did in those days had much thought behind it except hanging out and making music with your friends. <laughs> So I'm supposed to say hello from Robert Gordon. He was just here. Uh, uh, he was doing an interview too? Yeah, I interviewed him. He wrote the liner notes for the whole box set. Right. Uh, and he said, the thing that I'm supposed to, to say to you is that you uh, you were born you were born across the street from Stax. Right. I, and I, he's I, like, you're the you're the real Stax lifer, that, you, that yeah. you were born across the street. Yeah, I was born at, uh, you know, Stax is... Um, 
address is 926 East Macklemore. Uh, ironically, I was born in 925 East Macklemore. So literally across the street. Yeah. Literally, literally across the street. Yeah. 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 He said you're you're like the real the real lifer, and yeah, that I needed to make sure I got got you to talk about right that you were born across the street. So, mm-hmm. um, so the bar case formed when you guys were all in high school, like junior high school, junior high school even. Yeah. So when you started, like, what was was the goal to like? I mean, I, I, I started bands in middle school and I, I never thought I would, you know, be playing with Otis Redding or, you know, doing anything. What, what were you guys thinking when you, you just wanted to be a good band or? To be quite honest with you, man, we weren't thinking about nothing. <laughs> we weren't thinking about nothing, man. We was just, uh, you, you know, we just had this camaraderie. Uh, we just wanted to be together and, um, you know, um, and not trying to toot your own horn, but we, you know, we got pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but, but we wouldn't think about any of that, you know, uh, when, we, when we got the group together. We just, you know, we, 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 we all became friends first. And then uh, we, we all just happened to love music and, and we got involved in music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how it all started, really. Yeah. And how hard was it for you guys to, like, play gigs around town as teenagers? Um. It wasn't um, the hardest thing about playing gigs around town for us was we were underage, and mm-hmm. you know at that time uh, to be in a nightclub you supposed to, supposedly you were supposed to be twenty one you supposed mm-hmm. to be twenty one years old but um, you know the club owners you know I I can remember we were playing at this club one night uh, a club called the Hippodrome on Bill Street and. Um, the Vice Squad was was coming, you know. The Vice Squad, uh, but the club owner, uh, he had a he had a direct uh, connection to downtown. So someone from downtown called him, said like, "The Vice Squad is coming to your club next." So, so what he would do, we we, we were playing in in the club illegally. He would lock us up in the dressing room. The Vice Squad would come to the club and raid the club, and then when the raid was over. And the, and the advice squad was gone, he would unlock the dressing room and we'd go back up on stage and start playing again. <laughs> that was the signal for everybody so, yeah, to come so we, back and yeah, party. We, yeah, we did, a, we did a lot of that type stuff, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, I talked to Steve Cropper yesterday in Nashville. I interviewed him for this, this podcast, too. Um, right. And he said that, like, you guys used to just, like, you were the kids hanging around the studio and that... Uh, Carl Cunningham like would just be like playing on the drums in between sessions and that like you guys were hanging out there so do you have any like memorable stories of like you know you mentioned when we were standing before that like Duck Dunn purposely uh stayed away from a session so you could get get some work and so like what do you have any stories about like hanging out at the studio before you guys were you know the Barquets yeah uh actually uh believe it or not uh, Duck Don, Al Jackson Jr. Uh, took a liking to us. Uh, oh, and Booker T. Jones as well. Uh, Steve Cropper, you know, I have to say, you know, he was just, um, he was different. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't mess with us too much. But, um, but Duck, and, and as it turned out, uh, as we got to know Booker, uh, Booker played on the B side of Soul Thing. I don't know if you knew that or yeah, not. Yeah, I did. I played harmonica, right? He played yeah. harmonica, yes. Yeah. And um, b- believe it or not, little did I know that 
the Bar K's, uh, me, the bass player, the guitar player, and the drummer, we would end up being the MGs. Really? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we were the, I guess, for lack of a better word, we were the second string MGs. Mm-hmm. Because, see, uh, Duck and all those guys, they, they didn't really like the gig that much. So, uh, and Booker, you know, was younger than them, so he, he liked to go out and gig. And, and so he said, look, they're not going out. I'm going to take y'all out. And uh, I'm Booker T, and y'all are the MGs. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are playing club dates as the MGs. As yeah, all the, kind yeah. of dates. Yeah, <laughs> concerts, everything as the MGs. We we did about maybe ten or fifteen shows as the MGs. Yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I people confuse you for Duck Dunn apparently. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. I, you know, they, they, you know. In in fact, we were we, we were di- we were doing a gig one time, and he said, this guy came up saying, well. You know, I thought it was two white guys in Booker T and MGs. All of you guys are black. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, you know, we got a we got a deep suntan, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but you know, we had to make up something. I mean, you know, the, you, they they knew it was two Booker T and MGs consisted of two black guys and two white guys, but so well, we pulled it off. Mm-hmm. I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so a lot of things seem like they really happen very fast for you guys that like, you know, one day you're hanging out at the studio and then you have this huge hit with soul finger. Um, well, it just didn't really happen that easy, believe it or not. Um, the same club that I was telling you about the Hippodrome, we used to play at this club every, you know, every weekend we used to play at this club and we played behind, you know, various singers and this one particular time, we were playing behind Norman West, who Norman West was a just a you know vocalist in town who ended up becoming one of the soul children. You heard of the soul children yeah. before, right? Yeah, okay. Well, he he became one of the soul children, so he used to sing this song every night called "But It's All Right" by J.J. Jackson. And um, we used to play this little riff, you know, a little vamp at the end of the song. And every night when we played this little vamp. You know, we looked around at each other and said, what is that? You know, we didn't think nothing of it. So we had an audition coming up pretty soon at Stax Records. And the person that we auditioned with was none other than Mr. Steve Cropper. So, because Steve Cropper was the A&R guy at Stax. And so uh, we went in and auditioned for him. You know, we thought he was pretty, you know, hot. Yeah, you had the juice, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Steve Cropper's, you know, we auditioned for him. He said, nah, you know, y'all are all right, you know, but no thank you. So uh, we auditioned for him one time. Then, But he said, I tell you what, I'm going to let you guys come back again sometime. And so about maybe a couple of weeks later, we went back and we auditioned for him again. We went back the second time and he said, uh, you're a little better, but still. I'm not that interested in y'all. So as we were leaving the second time, the owner of the recording studio walked in, a guy by the name of Mr. Jim Stewart. And uh, he said, who are you guys? We said, we have just a little group like that. He said, well, I've been seeing everything that's going on. Uh, would Would you mind coming back up here again and auditioning for me? And we said, but of course. Mm-hmm. So the next weekend, we came back and we auditioned for him. And he asked us to play something. And we remembered we played this little groove that we had, you know, had been playing at the nightclub. And uh, he said, what is that? We said, 
we don't know what this is. And he said, don't change nothing. Keep what you got. Then he ran up in the control room, and literally 30 minutes later, we had Soul Finger. Yeah, and somebody pulled kids in to do the thing at the beginning, yeah, right? David like, Porter, yeah, yeah, David Porter, uh, we have to give him... We have to give him the juice. David Porter came. He pulled the kids in, and uh, and that's how we. Um, that's how it ended up being um, Soul Finger, because you know he, he said I'm gonna give you the cues, and y'all said like this, and then you know I added some stuff on. You know I added some improvision on it, and I, I did a little ooh ah ooh ah ooh ah. I did that little improvision on that, so you know that it turned out to be a little thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I always say, you know, it kept me out of the um, kept me out of the chicken house. I would have been probably working at KFC, uh, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken now, you know, serving, you know, chicken. Mm-hmm. Give me a three piece extra crispy with biscuits. Yeah. yeah hold the gris- biscuits and gravy. <laughs> yeah. So but. Um, yeah, and you were what? Like you were 17 when Soul Finger? 17 when Soul Finger. uh 17 was a very good year. Uh, it was a good and bad year, but it was a good year because that was the same year that we uh, met Otis Redding. Right. Same year we recorded Soul Finger, and uh, also the same year that the untimely death of Otis Redding mm-hmm. in the bar case happened. But uh, it was it was quite um, an amazing year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you guys put out Soul Finger, did you like envision that that was going to become? I mean, you, I know you're 17. You probably thought like, I got, I got the hot shit here, right? Like, but, uh, but man, did you like expect that like it would do what it did? We had no idea. I mean, you have to understand something. We wouldn't really. I mean, you know, how can I say it? We didn't know to think about that. We wouldn't think about stuff like that, you know. Uh, we we just was just trying to do was just trying to play music. We wasn't thinking about what it'll do or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Otis comes and sees you guys, right? Do you remember the night that he like decided like this is the <clears throat> band that I want? Okay. And did you guys like feel that too? That like we need to be working with Otis. Once again, we didn't. We we thought nothing of it. This is the same club that we was playing at Club Hippodrome down on at Five Hundred Bill Street. Uh, you know, shows used to come to town all the time uh, at a spot not that far from here called the Mid South Coliseum, mm-hmm. and there was a big, uh, you know, package show at the Mid South Coliseum, and Otis Redding was the headliner. You know, it had about seven or eight acts on there. I think. Uh, Arthur Conley was on there, the Manhattans. There was a lot of acts on there, Carla Thomas. But, you know, entertainers, when they finish doing their shows at a big arena, they always like to go to a, like an after party or a club and hear a band playing. So they told them about this band playing down at this club called the Hippodrome, <laughs> 500 Bill Street. Uh, so they brought Otis Redding down there, and he saw the band and uh, he asked us to sit in. I mean, he's you know they he wanted they he, you know he asked us to sit in. You know, could he sit in with us? And we said, but of course. And so he called out the song, and and uh, we we figured out what key he was in, and we counted it off. Mm-hmm. And then that's when he said, "Hey, I got to have these guys as my band." But 
Our parents wasn't having it. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. So you're you're because you guys could have gone on tour a little bit earlier than you eventually did, right? Like yeah, school was still yeah. going on, <laughs> and you guys are like what? I, I'm imagining you're like I'm out of here, right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, well, well you, you know, uh, most of the guys except me, they they were already uh, in the twelfth grade. They were seniors in high school. Mm-hmm. I was a junior in high school. Uh, so Otis asked. Um, he he spoke to Mr. Al Bell and said uh, that he really liked the band. He wanted to take us on the road with him, and so they arranged to meet with our parents uh, to see if we could go on the road. And uh, our, you know, Otis was saying yes, and our parents were saying no. So, but what happened was the minute that we uh, graduated from high school. Well, they graduated. I didn't graduate that year because mm-hmm. I was graduated the next year. We left and went on the road with Otis Redding. And the first gig that we went on with him was at the Apollo Theater. Trial by fire, man. You right. You just dropped right into it, huh? Right into it. Yeah. Um, and it, before you, how long did it take to, for you guys to make the full LP? soul finger then because that happens before you go out on the road right yeah we have been working on it on and off for about probably about a month it took us about i, I would say it took us pretty close to a month to record it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and do you have any like memories of what it was like in the studio at that time like making that album yeah it, it was really a fun time because right after we recorded soul finger um you know, Booker T was hanging out in the studio with us, and we came up with this song uh, called Knucklehead, and he played a monica on it. So that was that was real interesting. You know, um, we are really grateful for the, the stuff that Booker, uh, Duck Don, and Al Jackson, Isaac Hayes and David Porter, uh, Alan Jones. I mean, th- these all of these older musicians – they kind of like took us under their wing, and that was uh, it was like a mentorship that you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're getting to like learn how to be a band in the studio, which is like making these hit records, which just had to have been oh, unreal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, you know, money could not, you couldn't buy, uh, you know, the experience that we that we learned from you know working around these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, when you guys made Soulfinger, you know, later on, you guys obviously would have a lead singer. But, like, when you guys were making Soulfinger, the record, at that point, were you ever like, we should have a singer? Or were you just like, we're going to keep it the bar case? Uh, you know, back in those days, we weren't even thinking about a singer. Mm-hmm. However, we did have a guy that, that we brought on and let him sing a couple of songs, you know, right before Otis came on. And his name was um, Carl Sims. Okay. And um, he was quite an entertainer. You know, he, he, he you know he could imitate Wilson Pickett. He could in, imitate James Brown. He could do all the James Brown moves and all of that. So that was kind of like a, you know, that was kind of like a real good color change. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you guys, like Soul Finger, the, like it, it's crazy to think of how compact amount of a time it basically is like Soul Finger, the single is like March or April. You guys are like graduating, you're going on tour. Like, do you, does that just all feel like a blur to you now? You know, like 50 plus years later? 
Or what, what do you mean? It feels like a bore to me. A blur, not a bore. Like, is it just, it just seems like so much had to have happened in your life in that single year that like. Man, let me tell you something. I remember this stuff just like it was yesterday. Yeah. It's just like, um, you know, just looking back on it, I just, you know, I just smile. I, I have fond memories of that time, uh, you know, just, you know, working with Otis and the Barquets because, I mean, we were like, all of us guys were like family. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was just like, you know, uh, I mean, I, you know, I only had one brother, but I, but some of these guys we were closer than you know, you, you know, your blood brothers. So we, I mean, because we were together, right. like and, all of the time. Mm-hmm. And they were the only people experiencing this thing with you, yeah. right? That like Beautiful. the only per people that know how it feels to be a barquet was a barquet, right? Right. Like, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I mean, what was it like in that t- those tours with Otis? Like, were you aware that, you know, being the backing band, like, that that guy had it? You know, like, no you got question. to see that every night on tour, right? From, I mean, from, you know, day one. I mean, you know, I stood there every night in awe. I mean, I couldn't hardly uh, do my job for, for being a fan. You know what I mean? I said, mm-hmm. wait, wait a minute, James. I need to be... <laughs> concentrating on on doing my job instead of you know being a fan but i mean but we also got a chance to play for some of the other artists too on the show we played uh you know otis had a little protege uh a guy by the name of arthur conley who had a song called sweet soul music so we played behind him and we also you know when carla thomas came was on the show we played behind her mm-hmm. uh and when rufus thomas would be on the show we would play behind him and then there was another group that opened up the show called the Manhattans. So we we would play behind them. So we we got uh, a lot of experience backing up people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, some other artists, another artist that comes to mind would be uh, like James Carr. You know, sure. he, you know, James Carr had a song called At the Dark End of the Street. Mm-hmm. So we, we played behind him. Excuse me. We played behind him as well. You know what I mean. And then at a point, you guys were also then opening the show because Soul Fingers a hit. So then, oh yeah, like, we were opening the show. We were busy. We were a little busy, yeah. busy little guys. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah. You were really you were earning your earning your pay that night, man. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't. We don't really need to, you know, cover the plane crash because I'm sure that, you know, you've had to answer questions about that for your, your yeah, entire I don't, life. I mean, if you, if you want to say something about it, I don't have an, I don't have a problem talking about it. I mean, I, I would say more like, I'm curious the decision, like it's you and Ben after the plane crash, like how long did you guys like, how did that process work for you to decide? Like we should keep, keep being musicians and be the bar case. Well, let me just tell you how you, that whole thing uh, unfolded um, before the plane crash. I mean, Believe believe it or not, even though at an early age, uh, I'm happy to say that we had wisdom beyond our years. So we would have conversations about this, and the, one of the conversations went like this. We said, uh, if anything ever happens to one of us, whoever's left must carry on. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, that resonated very strong in my mind. And that's what happened. That's what. That's how we end up. Uh, kept the thing going. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, but little did I know that I would be the one to have to keep it going because 
Ben was Ben mentally was in a different space because he was physically involved in the actual plane crash. Right. He was he was the the only surviving member of the plane crash. So he he wanted to carry on, but he wasn't he he couldn't uh, for lack of a better word take the bull by the horn and just uh, you know keep it moving like that. So you know I was the guy that that really started all of that, and then. Um, Later on in life, I met a gentleman by the name of Alan Jones, who ended up being our manager and producer. But before that, it was just me, mm-hmm. myself, and I. <laughs> yeah. And then, so like after you guys reform, you kind of ended up becoming what they sort of, you know, that the idea was, was that you would be the next version of Booker T and the MG. So you'd be like the next house band. And then like later on, you actually do become that then. Um, right. Where you're backing up everybody in the early 70s, like you're on everybody's records. We yeah. wasn't, I mean, there again, we wasn't, that wasn't the intention. That, that wasn't what we was trying to do. But um, at Stax, you know, and this is no disrespect to Booker T and the MGs because, you know, they are our mentors. Uh, but, you know, as different producers came in, they wanted something a little different. And, and, and it's not, by no means do we feel that we are better than Booker T and the MGs. Let's say that we are a little different from Booker T and the mm-hmm. MGs. And so that difference that we offered, uh, some producers wanted to, you know, they wanted to try try that. And um, and one of the, probably the biggest benefactors of trying that was Isaac Hayes. Mm-hmm. So he tried it and, and he liked it and it worked. The tragic plane crash that took the Barquets and Otis Redding's life forever changed life at Stax. Here, Steve Cropper talks about Otis dying and how it, along with some things we'll get to in the next episode, changed the energy at Stax. So, after the you know the tragedy with Otis, did you guys feel like a like it it changed at Stax after Otis? Yeah, it definitely changed everybody. Did you feel like a lot of pressure as a group, or like what what did it feel like inside of Stax? Well, I, I don't know. I, I know we got you know he passed away in that airplane on a Sunday, and they still hadn't found him. Some of the other guys they did, and there was one survivor. And I, you know, I kind of have my own theory on why the plane went down. But they have not found had not found uh, the pilot Dick or uh, or Otis at that time because it was too murky, too cold, and they couldn't do it. They found him on a Friday, but we get a call on a Monday and said we got to get something out on Otis right away. And so Jim came to me, Jim Stewart came to me and said, what do you got ready? I said, we don't have anything ready. We've been cutting for a couple of weeks, but nothing is mixed or ready to go. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to have something real quick. Well, I knew the only thing that we had that I knew was guaranteed it was Dock of the Bay. But it was unfinished, and that's where the seagulls and the ocean waves came to pass. Mm-hmm. So Otis and I talked about it. We knew it needed something. Call it embellishment, whatever you want to say. We knew it needed something. I, he, he said, well, what about backgrounds? I said, Great backgrounds. Let's let's go with that. I said, if you can wait a couple of weeks, I said, or a week, whatever it was. I said, next after this week, uh, I'm going to be doing the Staple Singers, and I said they would die to sing on your song. All I got to do is just mention they'll go, yeah, and they probably would have. But there was no time. They wanted to get that out, so I went with the gulls and the, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the ocean waves. Yeah. <laughs> Why, why do you, what's your theory for the plane going down? 
uh, they flew out. They they couldn't see the runway, so they pulled up, flew out over a lake, and it went. The wings iced up, and they sp spiraled it. Mm -hmm. That was in the day. They had a Cessna, but they didn't have the buckling. They right after that, or not too long after that, they they had what they call bucklers, and you can there's a motor you push it, and it ripples the. Mm -hmm. It'll bust the ice off the wings, so it doesn't get too heavy. Go down. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And the other thing is that plane, they, they were told here in Nashville and also in Cincinnati that uh, the plane was not at 100% power. We don't know what that meant. I don't know. I never did talk to the mechanics, but they said it, it wasn't low power. So Otis being as cautious as he was, he put uh, his wife and uh, some of the equipment and James Alexander, the bass player, up on a private plane, on a, not, on, a com on a commercial plane to fly into where their gig was in Madison. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, he did everything he could. The problem was the weather was really bad and everything up north was iced in and crazy and foggy. And mm -hmm. we were up there too. We played the night. I didn't know it at the time uh, that we had a gig, but I got reminded that afternoon. <laughs> Notices, pokes his head in the door and I was sitting up to do the guitar overdubs. He said, well, I'll see you Monday. I said, okay, man, have a good trip and I'll see you Monday. And then not long after that, Booker calls and says, you know, we got this show up wherever we're playing. Something university up there. Oh boy! <laughs> so we did that. That was on Saturday night, I think. So mm -hmm. just one gig up and back. So we leave you there in late 1967 with an uncertain future at Stax. We've made it halfway through our box set, and in next week's episode, we learn how an executive named Al Bell turned things around at Stax by engineering a massive push for LPs called the Soul Explosion. Make sure you scan your QR code for more audio content from this edition of Anthology and a bunch of other bonus things to read and watch. Follow along with the weekly unboxings as well. We've only got two AMAs left. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast was executive produced, written, and posted by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder. This episode's interviews were recorded at American Recording Studio in Memphis with engineering by Jason Gillespie and at the 30 Tigers office in Nashville with engineering by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. Voiceovers engineered by Jonah Graber. Special thanks to Brad Dunn at American Recording Studio, Stephen Angel Cropper, Mr. James Alexander, Robert Gordon, the staff at 30 Tigers for letting me record in your conference room, and Michelle Smith at Stax. I sign off like I have all season with this singular reminder. Listen to more David Porter.